So today is Trinity Sunday. The Sunday in the church calendar when we most expressly note in the words of the Athanasian Creed that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. And it seems to be tradition in liturgical circles to make young priests squirm, border on heresy, and get a little theologically dirty in their attempts to explain the Trinity on this day. And here I am for the second year in a row on Trinity Sunday. So welcome back to me. So let me explain here that the Trinity is a biblical truth that we accept and for which we find evidence throughout the canon of Holy Scripture. And over the past couple of weeks, we have celebrated that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he has poured out the Spirit. Even our feasts and our worship leading up to Trinity Sunday highlight the doctrinal truth of the Trinity. Now, today's Revelation reading begins the process of challenging us in our trust in the work of the triune God. So my time away for the past three months has given me an interesting perspective regarding what I have seen occurring in the world. Many people in our contemporary context, including many in various churches, have been looking to worldly political systems for solutions to the problems they see around them. Some believe, well, if I vote for this party or that candidate, our worldly systems will somehow find themselves moving toward reflecting the kingdom of God. And this therefore leads to the conclusion that if your vote does not align with mine, you not only oppose me and my views, but you oppose God because I am aligned with him. So last week I took a moment to watch a segment of the January 6th hearings and I saw people who profess to follow Jesus commit acts of vandalism, destruction, and violence in Christ's name for the sake of a political ideology. Sadly, I encountered multiple churchgoers across the country who attempted to justify and defend such acts. In the minds of some, if their actions failed, they lost. Not only do they think they lost, but they think that the church lost. But the text of Revelation 4 provides readers and hearers of the apocalypse with a spirit-inspired vision of the political nonpartisan kingdom of God that depends on no worldly kingdom or government because the Lord is the Almighty who created all things. So a spirit-inspired vision shows us things as they really are. When looking at the world, you find people living in a culture under the illusion that the ultimate seats of power are in the Oval Office, Congress, and the Supreme Court. In John's day, Caesar's seat appeared as the seat of power in the Roman Empire. In the story of the Exodus, it was Pharaoh's throne. Somehow, when we look around ourselves, we find that there are seats of governmental power around the globe. 
But we find John in Revelation, a prophet of God. He received a spirit-inspired vision that depicted a reality that transcends the worldly systems around us. You see, no matter who has sat on earthly thrones, John sees that the Lord God sits on the throne. Oddly enough, in our Isaiah text as well, we see that Isaiah says that he saw that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. It wasn't the fact that Uzziah died that allowed for God to be on the throne. It was the fact that God was always on the throne in spite of both the good and the bad things that Uzziah had done as king. So maybe in understanding that the Spirit has inspired visions that we might see how things really are, it is time for those who profess to follow Jesus to see that the Lord God is sitting on the throne even now. He always has been and forever will be on the throne. Even when world powers are doing things that are antithetical to the word of God, he still sits enthroned on high. Now let's put this into biblical perspective. While suffering, get this, while suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire, John receives an invitation from an angel of God to come up here. He was in the spirit and he saw a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. In other words, the understanding that John has now been told to come up here gives an understanding that it's not just about what he's seeing in the physical world around him, but he has the opportunity to look at and to tell us about what he sees based on what the Spirit is showing him the true reality is in which he lives. That no matter who is in power, no matter how much he is suffering, no matter how much he's experienced persecution, no matter how many people have died before or after him, that God sits on high and is the ruler of all things. Sometimes, though, it seems as if people in the church, at least in our cultural context, are busy attempting to use worldly systems to solve worldly problems while forgetting that we are people who are not of this world. I sometimes hear people cry persecution where someone simply disagreed with them or noted that they did not prefer their Christian expression. And in light of that, I sometimes wonder if biblical proportions of persecution instead of tastes of political power would drive the people of God to a spirit-inspired vision of God's rule over all creation. Oddly, I would dare say that many people see the book of Revelation primarily as a pronouncement of judgment upon the unfaithful. But it's important to note and remember that John sent the writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The writing of Revelation is to the church, not the world. 
So the parallelism that we see between Revelation chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 6 points out something for us and, and confirms this in so many ways because after the end of our Isaiah reading today, we discover that God calls Isaiah to go to the people of Israel and confront them regarding how they have operated in the world. Maybe, just maybe, it is time for people in the churches to be confronted regarding how they interact with one another and with those around them. You see, when we stop and look at how we operate as the people of God, we have to recognize that the world is constantly watching. And we see in Scripture that there are moments and times at which the people of God get it right. And when the people of God get it right, we see the edification of the body. We see the glorification of God and people come to faith. But when we get it wrong, we have to recognize that the world, those outside the church, now have room to rightfully indict us and call us out for what we have done that does not align with God's holy word. This call to confront the people of God actually finds some recollection amongst the four living creatures being mentioned because it recalls a similar event in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet is sent to the people of God to talk about what's going on amongst God's people. And while people in the church often discuss God's judgment in terms of the unbeliever, Scripture seems to direct the focus of God's judgment, at least in its initial stages, towards those who profess to follow him. So while the rallying cry of many in the churches is about the morality of the unbeliever, God reminds those who call themselves his people of their responsibility to him. So I ask, are you hearing what the Spirit says to the churches? You see, a spirit-inspired vision of the kingdom of God reveals that the one who sits on the throne is all-powerful and eternal. Far too often, the gospel has been prostituted at the hands of worldly political figures to garner the support of those who say they follow Christ. At the same time, John's vision depicts the one on the throne as the Lord God Almighty. In other words, no matter how much power any person or party or political group may have, no matter how much power a particular system may hold, they do not have more power than God himself. Additionally, the identification of the one on the throne as the one who was and is and is to come reinforces the biblical understanding that the worldly kingdoms around us are temporary, but God and his kingdom will last forever. Over the years, I have served in various parish and parachurch ministries. And I've been in interviews for jobs where people have tried to figure out my political leanings or my partisanship. And oddly, these things have always been in the context of Christians, Christian ministry, Christian organizations. And I was once asked about the foundation of my 
worldly politics. And I responded and said, I'm open about that. My position is clearly stated on my Facebook account. Go look at it. And they found a Bible verse. It was Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And they seemed confused because that is not what they were expecting to see. They wanted a partisan affiliation. They just said, well, it's just a Bible verse. And I explained that that Bible verse sums it up oh so well, and that I hope and pray that many more believers would embrace that framework. Because the passage proclaims the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. As a result, when you hold to that view, you do not have to worry about who sits on an earthly seat of power. You do not have to concern yourself with a person, party, or political system that has the potential of dethroning the one who made every single throne because it's not possible to remove God from his throne. So what are you supposed to do in a world that is socially and politically divided where these divisions have sadly infiltrated churches and revealed that many have not and do not live, think, and believe or behave as they ought? You embrace and live in the prophetic vision that calls you to repentance the same way John did the churches. You focus your eyes on the one who sits on the throne. You stop attempting to wield worldly political power as a weapon to have your way. And now before you think that I'm saying, go stick your head in the sand and hide out until Jesus comes back, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that John's vision is a call for you to live as the people of God in an ungodly world that opposes godly rule. In other words, you don't get caught up in worldly political systems of any kind. You stop trying to fit in to those boxes. You don't try to fit into those boxes because as God's people, you are not supposed to fit into worldly systems. Instead, you accept the invitation to come up here and worship in the spirit. We join the seraphim of Isaiah 6 and the four living creatures of Revelation 4. We acknowledge God's holiness and power. You join with the 24 elders who declare, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You participate in the heavenly song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders singing a new song unto God where they declare, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's not through any worldly political system that Christians garner power because that only comes through the blood of the risen Christ. Notice the promise. They shall reign on the earth. 
Oddly enough, this song also recalls that Jesus died at the hands of worldly political powers, yet he demonstrated the divine power and majesty that came from on high by rising from the dead, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and pours out the Spirit upon all flesh. So why would those who follow Christ want to identify with worldly systems that cause the death of their Savior? Instead of doing that, you have a call to join the angelic hosts who cry, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You take your eyes off the worldly systems and you join with all creation saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. May those who identify as God's people live by both word and deed in ways that reflect their understanding that in all things, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Amen.